Today we are going to be reading out of 1 John, starting in chapter 2, verse 28. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible today, there should be one underneath a seat around you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please feel free to take that with you as a gift from us today. We would love for you to have that in your house. So if you are able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, we're in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28, and we're going to go down to chapter 3, verse 10. This is God's word. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if it's your first time, I want to thank you for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we'd love it if you'd let us know who you are so uh, you can get connected. You could do that by filling out a Connect card. Just let us know you made it out this morning. Uh, those should be in the seat backs in front of you. Uh, as Jenna said, we are in the middle of a series walking through the book of First John. And this morning, we're going to continue as we make our way into chapter number three. But before I do that, we got a lot of ground to cover. And so if you would, bow your heads with me. I would love to pray for us before we start. Father, thank you for your word. It stands as timeless and it has such congruence. It has such beauty. It has such um, meticulous design. Thank you, Lord, that you've preserved it for us for thousands of years. Jesus, thank you that you stand forth from it as a glorious Savior, loving us, pursuing us, calling to us. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you're able to make Jesus known and that's your longing. And so we do ask God, would you, would you now open our hearts, our ears, our eyes to feel, to hear, to see? God, we come from a week full of who knows what, lots of things in our family lives, our personal lives, work, a country and world in turmoil. God, lots of things that could easily distract us 
from hearing from you. And so we just ask, would you now help us to focus, help us to lean in, help us to hear, so that, my God, our hearts would be open and fertile ground for the fruit of the Spirit to be born. We trust ourselves to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is a book like no other. The more I read the Bible, the more I fall in love with God, the more I fall in love with the book. Uh, The truth contained in the pages of the Bible are just unmatched. There's not another holy book on the face of the earth that even uh, comes close to what the Bible is able to do in its scope, in its authority, and in its congruence. Uh, I think one of the most beautiful things about the Bible is Old to New Testament, thousands of years, Genesis to Revelation, multiple different authors, the Bible has a singular message, and it's woven throughout, and it has such a, uh, every end meets so neatly together that it's impossible to see it as anything less than divine. The Bible is unique in this way. Um, and we often make the mistake of thinking the Old Testament's a separate book from the New, or like, I want to get to the New Testament so I can get to Jesus. But in reality, the entire Bible speaks and points to Jesus, And from Genesis to Revelation, we see it pointing to Christ. Uh, Some theologians say, you know, you have the Old Testament, which is just the New New Testament concealed, or the New Testament, which is just the Old Testament revealed. But they they meet so beautifully together. And so far in this uh, sermon series, John has been writing to the church or his little children, and he's been encouraging them and admonishing them in the gospel. Uh, He's told them that they ought to find joy and fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit by walking in the light as he is in the light, to confess their sins one to another, to overcome condemnation by reminding one another that Jesus is both our advocate and our propitiation. He has said that we ought to lean into the Word of God and the Spirit of God to find strength to love each other, but also to combat false teaching and um, to be able to spot it for what it is. But this morning, John's going to take a turn as we approach the halfway point in his letter John is going to tie in some major Old Testament themes here, and it's impossible, in my opinion, to be able to fully understand what John's really getting at in this particular portion of text without understanding the Old Testament, at least at some level. If we don't have a good foundation of what God has been doing since the very beginning, John's words here, although they can be very helpful, I don't think they get their full scope. They don't get their full depth unless we have that framework from which we're reading it through. And so we're going to spend some time in a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of Jesus's red letter words in the gospel of John. But I wanted to read this quote by John Piper as he discusses particularly the issue that 1 John, chapter 2, end of it to I guess around verse 10 is where we're at in chapter number three. What's the issue that John's after here? And the reason I wanna quote John Piper is because as I was kind of preparing to say, this is what really this whole text is about, I just couldn't put it as well as John Piper could. So rather than plagiarize him, I'll just read him, okay? So it probably is gonna, hopefully it'll be kicked up behind me. I don't know if I gave this in. If not, just kind of listen in. Uh, He says, how do we balance the danger of losing the full full assurance of our salvation and the danger of being presumptuous when we may not be born again. How can we be assured in Christ without taking lightly the remaining sinfulness in our lives? First John is the most carefully designed book in the Bible to address those questions, close quote. Okay, I'll try to give you the idea of what John's saying here. John Piper, he says, 
how do we balance this danger of losing our full certainty that we are in Christ without a doubt because of what he's done and because of how much he has loved us to open the eyes of our heart to be his children? We ought to be certain about that. That's the reason 1 John was written, that what a life we could live if we were sure we had eternal life, if we were sure that Christ was ours, if we were certain about our future, how would that change the way we live? Well, hopefully gloriously. But how do we balance that with the other side, which is the danger of being presumptuous about us being born again in light of the fact that you and I still have sinfulness, that you and I still live our lives in such a way at times that doesn't match up with what we believe. I know we're in church. You can be honest, okay? Just take a deep breath. That's true of us. That sometimes what we say and really believe at the depths of our heart, our actions don't line up. How do we balance that in light of what the scripture says? And First John threads this needle beautifully. But, he, but, the, but John only does this in such a way that you have to, have to have understanding of where we've come from Old Testament, really all the way from the beginning to now, to understand how John threads the needle here. And, and I was trying to figure out, I've mentioned this a couple of times throughout this sermon series, but I haven't really been able to get into it fully. And I just thought that it's impossible for me to get into the Old Testament without saying, we need to know a little bit more about what John the Apostle is having to combat in the false teaching in the churches in order to really know why he's going here. Uh, and, and I want to spend a little bit of time here because we got so much work to do, Old and New Testament, but I just want to make mention, John is combating the false teachers called the Gnostics. Not really important that you remember that name, only what they believe. And these Gnostics, they are denying, 1 John chapter number 4, verses 1 through 3 tell us this, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That's the denial. They're saying Jesus is 100% divine, he's just not 100% man. And that's a, that's a unique doctrine to Christianity, right? Like we believe that we serve and worship a God who is the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. The theologians call it the hypostatic union, this beautiful union of the God-man Jesus Christ, right? And what we'll find in some of the New Testament letters is that Paul's combating, maybe in Colossians, people who are more Arianist, and they would say, Jesus is not fully God, he was just a man. But John's combating the reverse, People that are saying, no, 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 Jesus is God. He's just not a man come in the flesh. He's, he did not actually incarnate as a human being. He's just a deified God. Now, you might be saying, well, what's the big deal with that? I mean, didn't Jesus do some really God-like things? That makes sense. Is that the big deal, Court? I mean, he, didn't he do the whole walking on the water? Human beings don't do that. He didn't feed the 5,000, do a lot. You know, human beings don't raise from the dead. Here's what I'll say. Once you get into the application of this false teaching, you'll realize just how dangerous it can become. If the false teachers can deny Jesus' humanity, then the new birth for you and for me becomes only spiritual and has no physical ramifications for it. Or to put it another way, it's only a spiritual rebirth, but you don't have to be looking for actual outworking of righteousness that comes from that. Does this make sense? Jesus forgives us of our sin, but because Jesus is 100% God, you don't have to expect yourself to be like Jesus because you'll never be like Jesus. You know why that's so dangerous? Because it's half true. You and I won't be 100% like Jesus on this side of things, and yet the New Testament is full and repute with commands that we would try to mirror and pursue Christ's likeness. Right? So when the... When the False teachers are saying, you're never going to be like Jesus. Don't worry about it. The danger here is that we would become much more comfortable with the sin that crucified the Savior or the sin that the Savior was crucified to put away. 
And John's combating this. He's saying, no, Jesus did come in the flesh. The false teachers are trying to convince the church that being a Christian that's been made righteous by Christ doesn't affect doing righteous things. And John is trying to say, no, becoming or our being that is transformed by the Holy Spirit will naturally lead to righteous pursuits. It has to. And so we have to believe the God-man, Jesus Christ, came in the flesh. Now, in order to really understand John's argument here, we have to go back and do some Old Testament work. So we understand the false teaching. We understand where John's at. If you'll turn with me, you can put your thumb or if you got a bookmark or whatever in 1 John, we're gonna come back here. But turn with me to Genesis chapter number three. I've made a few uh, allusions to this storyline over the course of the series, but we're gonna spend a little more time here this morning. Genesis chapter three. So let me pick you up. We're gonna start in verse seven, reading it, but I'll pick you up to where we are. In this scene, we're picking up a really integral moment in human history, namely the very beginning of human history. Our first parents were created and commanded by God. God creates the universe, stars, moon, sun, planets, animals, plants. Uh, in particular, there's this really interesting moment when he creates all the plants. God says, I, get, I put a seed in each plant and that seed will get, bear forth fruit or it will recreate according to its kind. Now, I'm not gonna press that analogy too much, but that seed idea is really important because then he does the same thing with his children, Adam and Eve. He says, they're going to bear forth fruit according to their kind, which is different, right? We're unique creatures. We're not like the creatures and the animals that were created. We're image bearers. And when Adam and Eve are fruitful and multiply, they bear fruit according to their kind. More image bearers are born, right? And God gives them these commands. Go be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, fill it. And then he gives them a singular command of what they ought not do. They ought not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. You guys are so familiar with this, hopefully. You've heard this a million times. The consequence of eating the fruit is gonna be certain death. And the serpent enters the story in Genesis chapter three, verse one. It says he's more crafty than any other beast of the field. He deceives our first parents into disbelieving God. They eat and their eyes are opened to their demise. Immediately, their eyes are opened. The first thing they notice is not some interesting secret knowledge about life, the first thing they notice is that they're naked and they become ashamed. So we're gonna pick up that story in verse, uh, verse seven of chapter number three and kind of talk through what goes on in this sinful first rebellious moment. Chapter three, verse number seven, it starts like this. Then the eyes of both, Adam and Eve, were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They realize they are naked. They try to sew together fig leaves to cover their shame, but they're ashamed in the presence of God as he walks among them, which has never happened to them before. The Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? These are all rhetoricals, by the way. If you're a parent, you get it. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Men have never changed since this time. Similarly, this is exactly what you've experienced in your life. It's the woman's fault. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she says, it's the snake's fault, it's the serpent's fault. Why is he even an animal around here? 
He did it. Now, really key in on these next two verses, this is important because what's going to happen is what God promised. There's going to be imminent death, but there's going to be curses that come along with this sin. And God's pronouncing the curses. It's serpent, it's woman, it's man. He's going to pronounce these curses on them. But I want to focus in on the curse on the serpent's life because I think it's important particularly to what John says in his epistle. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Key verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Number one, the word offspring in other translations means seed. There will be enmity now between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So many things that you have to ask questions about there, right? So apparently there's a new line that's gonna come from the serpent because of this rebellion, because of this decision to trust his word rather than God's word, there's gonna be a new line that's created and that seed is gonna have enmity against the seed of the woman. But you can go to health class later. That's odd, isn't it? Because typically the seed gets carried through the man. We all on the same page? Don't have to go deeper into this, okay? Like, no diagrams here. That's an odd statement. Seed of the woman. Then he goes on to say, and, and the seed of this woman, whoever this person is, becomes a singular person. He, he, will crush the serpent's head and it will just bruise this seed of the woman's heel. Now, that's what we know, and I've mentioned this many times since I've pastored at Providence. That's the first gospel that's ever been preached. Here, we get the gospel preached. Here's what's happened, sin, rebellion, darkness, death, but there's gonna be a seed of a woman who's gonna come, and he's gonna make right what's gone wrong here. That's God immediately telling us that he's gonna redeem what you and I have messed up. Okay, so let's make sure we get every single line before we go into the New Testament. First, we have Adam and Eve are God's children. That's important to catch. Because even in the book of Luke, you'll get the lineages, right? And the lineage of Jesus goes all the way back and and it says that Adam's the son of God, right? So Adam and Eve born as God's children, his kids. Then sin, because of their own rebellion, sin creates shame in God's presence. The curse of the serpent is about enmity between these two new lines that are gonna get created and the first gospel gets preached. There's gonna be enmity between God's children and those who hate and disbelieve God forever and ever until the seed of the woman shows up. Now, I want to read to you the implications of this. Once again, rather than trying to say it myself, I'm gonna read to you from a really, really old document that I think says it very well. (laughs) I don't have to say it myself. This is from the Westminster Confession, chapter number six. It says this. Adam and Eve being the root of all mankind. I think there's so much to that root, but let's continue. The guilt of sin was imputed to them. And the same death in sin and corrupted nature is conveyed to all of their posterity, that means their kids, And this is such an important line, descending from them by ordinary generation, close quote. What does that mean? Ordinarily, how we procreate and have children, we will always now carry with us the sin and corruption of our first parents because of their rebellion. That's what this means. That because of our first parent's decision, there's a new seed that's been born in our hearts of unbelief, disbelief, and then we can only bear fruit according to our kind or in a really practical way. Adam can only have kids that are sons of Adam. Eve can only have kids that are sons of Eve. And it just so happens because of their corruption of their heart, that's gonna be imputed guilt and imputed sin all the way down. Now, in case you're like, that's not fair. Don't worry. 
It's not just imputed guilt. Every single one of us has sinned willfully too. So if you're like, well, that's not fair. How come I have to take the, you know, their sin? That doesn't seem right. Well, you know, it didn't take you long to kind of join in cahoots with them and you've sinned. Probably this morning you sinned, depending upon how much your kid slept or you slept or who cut you off or whether you ate, right? So don't worry. You don't only get imputed guilt. You also get the, the righteous justice of God against your own sin. But I think this is important because why do you sin? Because we're children of Adam and Eve. And it comes from the seed, right? We can only bear fruit according to our kind. In other words, what the Westminster Confession is saying, from this moment in history, all who are children of Adam will ultimately be under the curse of sin. The seed of Adam has been corrupted. Mankind is in a state of fallenness. The promise of God, though, is that everyone's gonna surely die. Everyone has surely died ever since, but now he's going to redeem it through the seed of a woman. Fast forward. Last week, I promised you that we talk about a little bit about the virgin birth. Why is the virgin birth important? If you've ever read an article or somebody saying it's really not important to Christianity, totally bonkers. It is. Because it's only through the seed of the woman that another line can get created. Every other son of Adam, if he were to have a child, the cross would have ultimately been at some level justice for that person because they're sinners in the line of Adam. But for Christ, the sinless one, the seed of the woman, immaculate conception, not under Adam's seed, not imputed with guilt, only he can be the true atonement and Jesus is born. Bethlehem, right? The angels show up. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth amongst those whom with he is pleased. I mean, the angels showed up in worship because they said, and now we're here. We finally made it. And Adam all die, but in Christ, the sinless one, he's born of a virgin Mary. Okay, so we got in Genesis. Let's do a little bit in the gospels. John chapter number eight. So turn with me, right-hand turn, the fourth gospel in your Bible, John chapter number eight. As you're turning there, I wanna make mention of this. John wrote five books. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are epistles. And he wrote the book of Revelation, okay? So when we're picking up in the Gospel of John, you gotta understand, there's gonna be parallels between what God says or what John says that Jesus says in his life on the earth and what John is later gonna say is the application to those words. There's always gonna be a little crossover here. If you read 1 John and then you read the Gospel of John, you're gonna go, huh, his language is similar. It's the same thing that if you were to write two letters to two different people, people are gonna recognize there's some crossover here, the way you talk. We're gonna catch major, major thematic crossover from Genesis to the Gospel of John to 1 John, right here in chapter number eight. So to catch you up, John chapter number eight, we're jumping in verse 37, but to catch you up on what's happening, this is a typical confrontation between the Pharisees, the Jews of Jesus' day, and Christ. They're discussing their unbelief in Jesus and who he is. They refused to give Jesus the honor that was due to him. They regularly worked to undermine Jesus' ministry. These people could not get it in their heads that Jesus was anything other than an absolute false teacher. And so Jesus regularly has confrontation with this crew, Right? Now, here's the thing about this crew. They know their Old Testament. They know their Bible, and they're trying to be adherents to the law. So they have a problem with Jesus who comes in and says things that just really chaps them up, to put it lightly. <laughs> okay? So let's start in verse number 37. But before I read this, I want to tell you why they're going to be angry here. Jesus has just said, if you want to kick up, you can read this later, but I am from above, you are from below. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's intense. Can we agree? He just told them that. I'm from above, you're from below. He just put a big a chasm between the two of them. If you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. Now, if you ever thought that Jesus was wishy-washy, he's pretty clear. 
right? It's not really mincing words here. And they, they're, they're passionately angry at Jesus' words. Let's pick up what the Pharisees say. Let's start in verse 37. So these are red letters. Jesus says this. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. Let's pause. What's he saying here? I have a dad. He sits in the heavens. And I always just say what he tells me to say. But you, on the other hand, you have a dad too. And you say that your dad is Abraham. But that's not the voice I'm hearing. Now, he's kind of veiled here, right? He's being very clear about who his father is. But he hasn't yet told them exactly who he thinks their daddy is. Well, he's going to. They're catching the drift. Watch verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Now, this is a typical uh, first century Jew argument, but it's also one that they're aiming at Jesus. You gotta think, what they're saying here is, Abraham's our dad, who do you say yours is? Later, they're gonna say, is it right that we should not call you a Samaritan? They're, go they're trying to attack Jesus' mom's virgin birth. Uh, they've all heard of it. They've all heard the stories. They're saying, yeah, right, virgin birth. We know who your mom really got together with. That's what they're after here. We're, our father's Abraham. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Hmm. If you had the seed of Abraham or the seed of God, you would do the works like God did. You would bear fruit according to your kind. But... Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They, he said it again. <laughs> so he says, you do your dad's works. Now it's just really chapping them up, okay? Listen to the, what the Jews respond with. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Twofold argument here. Number one, we're not like the Old Testament Gentiles, okay? We got a pure lineage from Abraham. That's not what our parents did. That's the first argument. Second argument is, we're not like you, Jesus, and how you were born with your mom. That's what they're doing here. It's all this lineage talk, though, right? We have one father, even God. So now it's not just Abraham that's our father. God is our father. Watch Jesus' words. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. That's really key with what John's gonna say later in his epistle. If God were your father, you would love Jesus. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you say, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Here it is. You are of your father, the devil. <laughs> so he's just out with it now. Your will is to do your dad's, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's saying that's who your dad is. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? This is pointing clearly to another lineage. Jesus is saying what no human being has ever been able to say with any sort of fidelity. Tell me, I'm not a, tell me that I'm a sinner. Tell me how I've sinned. If you and I said that, people would be lining up. Mm -hmm. Your spouse first, you know, your kids come in. Dad, you actually are kind of shut up, kid. You know, whatever. Jesus says, tell me. You know how bold that is? A 30-year-old man standing up and saying, tell me, you convict me of sin. Where's it been? And no one can say anything. This happens regularly where they make up false accusations, but when they meet Jesus face-to-face, -face, they don't have anything to say. 
He's saying, I'm of my father. You can tell by my righteousness. But then he goes on to say, whoever's of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's really intense. Okay, for the sake of time, we're not gonna go on. But in a minute here, they're gonna say, their response is, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and that you have a demon? (laughs) They're mad. Okay, at this point, they actually pick up stones and try to kill Jesus at the end of it. Because he's gonna say, before Abraham was, I am. But the point is still made here. Jesus is really clear. He's saying, I'm the one God promised. I am the seed of the woman. Come to bless, Genesis chapter 12, the nations of all the earth. I have come to crush the serpent's head by subjecting myself to a brutal death in your place for your sins. I cannot stand in your place for your sins if I am not of the seed of the woman because in the end, my atonement would be null because I'd still be a sinner. But I'm not. I have come from God and you can't hear my voice, Jesus says. He said, this will only bruise my heel because I'll rise again in strength and might and in victory. Jesus is juxtaposing himself against the first Adam saying, I am the second Adam. I am the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. Now, listen to what R.C. Sproul says about this. R.C. Sproul says, quote, Adam said, don't blame me, blame my wife. Jesus came and said, don't blame my wife, blame me. Adam said, God, it's your fault. You gave me this woman. Jesus came and said, I love that woman. I'll die for her. I'll take responsibility. Don't blame her, blame me. And then the great late R.C. Sproul says this, we are united with that kind of beloved. See, this is the message of 1 John. We have a savior that's created a new line that we can be born again. Listen to what Paul says about sinless impu- or sinful imputation. Romans chapter five, verses 18 through 19. It should be kicked up behind me. Paul says this, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, So by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. That's Jesus. Now, I want you to clue in here. Notice it says one man referring to Jesus. His humanity is essential. Just as much as Christ's divinity is essential, his humanity is essential so that you and I can, number one, have an effective atonement, and number two, what John's gonna get at, we have a promise and a command that we would pursue holiness like Jesus. And that that pursuit of holiness is what validates the very seed that God has placed inside of us. So if you're, if you're a picture type of person, you can think of it like this. Close your eyes if it helps. There's a starting line for you, being born into the earth. And because of Adam's sin and imputation of sin, you're on a trajectory forsaking and rebelling against God, both by nature and choice. So you're heading downward. And what Paul and John and all of the New Testament writers say is then Christ stands forth in the way. And he says, be born again. John chapter three with Nicodemus. You must be born all over again. How? A new seed has to be placed in your heart by the spirit. And this seed will be planted in your heart and then you'll be born all over again. Then the trajectory starts to go up further toward God. Naturally, your actions begin to change. What John's not saying is that you'll be sinless. He's already said, if you, have, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. There's no truth in you. 
But what he's saying is that the practice of sinning, the downward trajectory completely changes at conversion. Now you're on an upward trajectory toward Christ and it will end in what the Bible calls glorification where one day we'll see him face to face. And we're gonna get there in a minute. But that's what Jesus is saying here to the Jews. Ultimately, he's looking at them and saying, your works are still on a downward trajectory. If you don't believe in me, if you don't, when I stand forth and say, be born again, trust in me completely, justification before God, then your trajectory will stay the same. But if I can stand in the way and you will trust me, if you'll embrace me, if you believe in me, the trajectory changes forever. When we are born again, the seed of gospel grace in us begins to bloom. New desires are created, new hopes are created, new dreams of righteousness, purity, holiness, obedience, love, joy, sacrifice, care, gentleness. The New Testament calls all these things the fruit of the Spirit because the seed has been planted at the new birth. We bear forth fruit according to our kind. We have a new kind. Okay, now let's quickly and in closing go to 1 John and finish up. <laughs> Told you we'd get there. So what is, what is John trying to say here against these false teachers? Well, he'll tell you. And I'll kind of, we'll start in verse four. Let's Quentin Tarantino, right? We'll start at the end, go back to the beginning. It'll all make sense. Verse number four in chapter three. Because this is where it gets intense, right? Like the first part, we're all like, hmm, love it. But this is where it starts getting intense. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. So he's, he's directly attacking the false teachers. If you say that sin is no big deal because Christ is not a human and therefore you'll never be able to attain that, you're lying. Sin is what destroys, it's what decays, it's what Christ died for. We have to hate it. He's saying sin is not no big deal. It's a very big deal. But watch this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. What is John saying? No one who meets Jesus and the seed of the gospel is planted in the heart by the Spirit sins without retribution, with no conviction, and with no repentance. It cannot happen. What is he not saying? He's not saying that Christians are going to be sinless. He's not saying that even there might be seasons where you're battling and losing. Christians, you need to hear that. You may be battling and losing. There might be times where you, you how many of us do this, right? Fall into sin and you think, you know what? Just repent and talk to Jesus and, and it'll never happen again. And then you don't ever confess sin to your brother. You don't ever do, you just, I can do this on my own strength. And it starts to become a habit. It starts to become a struggle. And you start feeling the conviction, which actually starts to plague you. I have to tell someone about this. I, don't, I need help. I got to run to community. I got to help. I need somebody to, to preach the gospel to me, to pray for me, to tell me that, I'm, that this isn't always going to be this way. And he's nagging at you on the inside, but you don't want to because why? Because like your first parents, you're ashamed of it. You're hiding with fig leaves that you've sown for yourself. And here's what I want to tell you. If you feel that it is not the judgment of God, but the grace of God, the conviction of the Spirit drawing you back to him. That's how Christians feel with sin, is that they feel this pull back into the light as he is in the light. It doesn't mean that you won't sin. It means the pull of your soul now because the seed that abides in you is into the light as Christ is into the light. 
so that Satan no longer can condemn, Satan no longer can continue his accusations because you come to the light with your open and honest heart saying, I don't want this. What I want is these new desires you've planted in me, righteousness and peace and hope and gentleness. I wanna love my wife. I do not want to mistreat her. I wanna love my kids. I wanna be there for them. I don't wanna be absent. See, these new desires, and you bring it to the light as he is in the light. Verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning, check this out, listen to this in terms of what we've just read, is of the devil. (laughs) Remember, the seed, right? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So he's saying, look to the beginning, he's been doing this. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? To sow seeds of unbelief into the hearts of God's children so that they might continually walk in the pattern and practice of sinfulness forever and ever. Jesus came to destroy those very works. So far be it from us to say that they aren't a big deal. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Look at this, for God's, somebody give me that word, seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. It's the Christian just, have you ever wondered why? Maybe, maybe you have friends that are non-believers and, and you feel like they can do things that you just can't do without feeling overwhelmed. And you, you may have attributed it because the world tells you that's because religion makes you feel guilty. Right? Well, you just need to, if you could just, if you could just quit religion, then you wouldn't keep feeling these things. You wouldn't feel bad about it. If you could just shirk off religion like a bad, tight coat, then you'd feel so free. And the truth is, shirking off the religion is really shirking off Christ, like throwing the parachute off as the plane's going down. You feel free in the worst possible way. In reality, that feeling of why can, why can these people act, act in this way and engage this and never feel an ounce or a shred of conviction about it, it's because God's seed abides in you. It's because he doesn't want to allow you to be who the enemy has tried to convince you to be. He died for it. He died to make you his. So I say to you, don't loathe that feeling Jonah says, I'm going to Tarshish, not Nineveh. God says, you're going to Nineveh. You might say, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be who I want to be. I'm I'm quitting this whole religion thing. God says, you're going to Nineveh. He will pursue you to the ends of the earth. Jesus came and actually said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Salvation is part of it. So is this passionate pursuit. He's after his children. One way to look at it, I heard one pastor say, he was, a, he was a missionary, Christ will have the full reward of his suffering. He suffered for a bride, so he will bring in the full reward of his suffering to himself. Okay, now, we'll finish it off by verse 10. By this, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So Quentin Tarantino, let's start in verse 28 of chapter two. This is the end of that trajectory upward toward Christ. John's giving us a great hope of what the Bible calls glory and that the Christian should have glory in mind always. Listen to this. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Does that make you think of anything in Genesis 3? God walks in the cool of the day, and as he comes and appears, they shrink away. John says, not the children of God. 
One day he will return and you can stand in confidence. You don't have to hide your shame because Christ has been your covering. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Listen to this. You want to put this, you could tweet this, Facebook it, put an artwork up. If you're a tattoo person, this is you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God? Four beautiful words, and so we are. That's John's absolute rock-solid confidence in what it means to be a Christian. You are a child of God. When he says so, it is true. When he places the seed of the gospel in your heart, he has claimed, my child, you will bear forth fruit all the way to the end. Philippians 1.6, what I begin, I complete. Paul says it like this in some of his writings, the seal of the Holy Spirit lies upon the heart of the Christian and so, just like the Romans would put their seal on different things to say ownership, it would signify this is the authority and ownership of the Roman Empire, the ruler, the Caesar. It's funny because Caesar called himself the Son of God at that time. Paul says, the true Son of God has placed his seal on our hearts, the Holy Spirit planting a seed inside of us that we are his, and therefore we are called the children of God. We are forever. When God says you're a son, you're a son. I want to encourage you with this because think of the power of our God. When God says it is so, he does not, he doesn't have double tongue. God doesn't say something and say, I wish it could be. He says it is. When Jesus said it was finished, he didn't mean, and I still need your good works. It's finished until you can really clean up. He says, it's done. You're mine. J.D. Greer says it like this. My identity and security is not in my spiritual progress. My identity and security is in God's acceptance of me as a gift in Christ. And friends, it's from that identity that we see the seed of God in our hearts bear fruit. So my encouragement to you this morning is very simple. Be who you are in Jesus, not in the false identity that the crisis actor Satan loves to convince you of. When we're teenagers, we go through identity crisis, right? You know, everybody's trying to figure out who they are in eighth grade. It's an awkward time. You know, if you're in eighth grade in here, you're beautiful. But when I was in eighth grade, not so much. Gangly, I'm ugly, weird, bumps on my face. Just things aren't happening the way I want them to. Girls become scarier. It's an odd time, isn't it? Try to figure out who you are, what friend group you're going to be a part of. Am I going to be in band or am I going to be in football? feels like a life or death choice. You know, and then even in those subsettings, you know, am I going to try out for quarterback or am I just going to, you know, be content with special teams? Or if you get in band, you're like, am I going to really go after the oboe or, you know, the tuba? What am I going to do here? All these decisions feel really important because identity is such an important thing. And I think it's really sad when Christians continue on in that identity crisis forever in their life. Always trying to be certain about who they are when Christ has already told you who you are. And let me tell you this, identity crisis will lead to eventual sin and bad fruit because you're just not sure who you are. You don't know if your father's the devil or if your father's God. I'm not really sure. And I'll tell you something, Satan is a little g God of confusion. Our God is a God of peace, self-control, and of a sound mind. That's what 1 Timothy says. When we're double-minded, we do not speak out of God's character because he is not double-minded. He's had a singular pursuit since the very beginning and it's to procure for himself a bride at all costs. Let me tell you something. God is not about shooting twice. He shoots once. 
He doesn't have to you know, re- have redos. That's why I don't like the idea of the gospel being a second chance. No, not true. God doesn't need second chances. He does it right always. And so when he calls you child, he means it. And now, so, I wanna encourage you this morning. When we live for our identity as God's children, our lives will be full of good fruit, holy and righteous. But when we live from our false identity as fallen, broken rebels, our lives will be full of rotten fruit, dark and hateful. So if you're in Christ, listen to me this morning. You are God's children now. Pursue righteousness, holiness. Be on the lookout for newness of life in your, springing out of your heart. Listen to me, you not only can change, you will change. If people try to say, I don't know if I'll ever change, I'm always gonna be this way, Court. That's a total lie. Not only can you change, you will change. It is a promise of God. You will not be who you are today in 10 years if you're in Christ. You will not battle the same things, at least with the same level of failure as you do today if you're in Christ because he has promised he will complete what he's begun. And so my encouragement to you is do not become weary in the well-doing. Pursue Christ, your treasure. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, my heart longs for spiritual work to be done. Oh God, how easy it is for us to be content with the superficial. My God, I know there's hurt in the hearts of some under the sound of my voice. There's need that's even unknown underneath the sound of my voice. And it's my deepest longing, my God, that you would get to the core and plant the seed of security in someone's heart. That Jesus, you really are who you said you are. No amount of relational, familial, occupational ties are worthy of neglecting the call that you give us, Jesus, to be in you. So would you now break those ties that the enemy lies to us and convinces us we're bound by? Do now what only you can do, Holy Spirit. And don't allow us to not expect that which is supernatural. Because, Lord, what is supernatural is very natural to you. So, God, would you do that work? I trust you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.